Welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. COP28 has demonstrated that the world is incapable of avoiding the unfolding climate catastrophe. We will have a seriously degraded planet in a few decades, and many of its life systems, guaranteed by biodiversity, will have been compromised. The consequences for life as a whole are very serious, as they are also for the human species, because we are intertwined and interdependent with that greater life of the Earth. Only a split creature, divorced from the life of its magnificent host, could wreck it so badly. The speed of this wreckage is also shocking. Despite all the moral efforts of the United Nations, the scientific research of the IPCC, the IEA, many of the research bodies, and in particular the eloquent and articulate exhortations of Antonio Guterres, the UN General Secretary. COP28, the gathering of the nations at a time of climate emergency, has been too little and too late. This has huge implications, for it was our last chance to salvage the Paris Accord and make a turnaround before 2030. Let's examine some of the so-called commitments of COP28. It pledged to triple renewable energy generating capacity. It is true there is a significant movement to renewable energy generation, especially in China. Yes, it is important, but it is nowhere near enough to reduce carbon emissions by 2030 by the 43% required to keep the world's average temperature to below the 1.5 degree threshold pledged by the Paris Agreement. As Guterres said shortly before the start of the COP28, this history of supposed pledges has been a canyon of broken promises and broken lives. Over 120 countries have made a pledge which requires a massive effort compared to past performance. On the positive side, solar and wind are now the cheapest source of new energy generation in many countries. Less positive is that the expansion of renewable energy is impeded by excessive regulation. For example, it can take up to eight years to get a grid connection permit in Europe. It's also very difficult in many American states. Another major problem is that massive investment is needed in electricity grids and power lines to upgrade them so as to function with renewable energy. In 2022, nearly 600 gigawatts of renewables were queuing for connection in five European countries, enough to double the region's capacity. In the US, projects that could triple the country's renewable capacity by 2030 are caught up in a similar gridlock. One country that is expected to more than reach the 2030 tripling goal is China, already a wind and solar giant, where billions have been invested in ultra-high-voltage power lines. But that will not be enough on its own. And the current state of play in the United States, Europe, Japan, India and Indonesia, for example, are not on track to meet the 2030 tripling target. Secondly, 
the COP28 pledge by some oil-producing countries and large corporations to reduce their operational emissions, especially methane and routine flaring, is laudable, but insignificant given the enormity of the actual emissions of their product when sold and consumed on the world markets. Thirdly, the failure to produce a stock take by COP28 with a subsequent adjustment to achieve the Paris Agreement goals is a shocking omission of its responsibilities. The compromised position of the United States, number two emitter of CO2 in the world, which is at peak oil and gas production in 2023, is especially scandalous. While the inability or refusal of China and India to restrain their huge domestic coal consumption, the dirtiest of the carbon dioxide polluters, is demoralising. Fourthly, the recent information from the IMF concerning the level of subsidy of world fossil fuels, reaching somewhere between 7 and 10 trillion dollars, a significant fraction of world GDP, makes mockery of so-called pledged reductions in clean energy aspirations. Fifthly, the commitment to greater energy efficiency. An FT article on December the 15th, 2023, entitled COP28, The New Climate Commitments That Really Matter, by Polita Clark, reported, and I paraphrase, The determination to improve energy efficiency is important since this offers the quickest and cheapest option for reducing emissions and cutting energy costs. This involves a wide range of policies from heat pumps, replacement of gas boilers, longer lasting light bulbs, low carbon building codes and transport codes, more efficient air conditioning systems and so on. An electric vehicle can convert, for example, more than 77% of the electrical energy from the grid to power at the wheels, while traditional petrol vehicles only convert about 12-30% to of the energy stored in gasoline. The countries that signed up to the 2030 Renewables Pledge agreed to collectively double the global average annual rate of energy efficiency improvements from around 2% increase per year to more than 4% every year until 2030. This is achievable, but highly ambitious. To summarise, meeting the three big energy pledges on oil and gas emissions, renewables and energy efficiency will require government action on a massive scale. Yet this will not be enough. Even if all three commitments are met, a big ask, the IEA has made the dismal calculation that this would only amount to about 30% of the emission cuts needed to put the world on track for the Paris Agreement goal to limit warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade. The Financial Times concludes, in other words, as with so much else in global climate policy, COP28 has taken an important step forward but it is still not close to the giant strides the world needs. So even assuming the above is achievable, CO2 emissions are still predicted by the IPCC and the IEA to increase by the end of the decade, rather than the almost halving that is required to keep within the 1.5 degree threshold.
Therefore, it seems to me, preparing for survival on a degraded planet still seems a sensible strategy. However, all the above collective and national pledges need still to be achieved, if possible, more than achieved, so that a complete trashing of the planet is avoided and survival is possible. In retrospect, it has been most naive to assume that oil, gas and coal-rich countries would voluntarily phase out their resources. Is there any country in the world that has willingly forgone the exploitation of the fossil fuels that lie in its territory? Climate denial or ignorance is very easy if one is making huge profits from fossil fuels. For example, Lula, the president of Brazil, and once hailed as a symbol of Brazil's commitment to ecological protection and the green transition, has plans, just announced, of turning the nation into one of the biggest crude producers by 2029. Well, that alone ensures a considerable rise in world emissions by 2030. Climate defiance is also now a feature of the global psyche. John Kerry, the United States tireless climate envoy, said that at the end of the COP, various national representatives came to him and said that they could not commit economic suicide by agreeing to the pledges. To an economist's way of thinking, it's clear that their economies and booming populations expect continuing economic growth, even to simply sustain their standard of living. But now billions in the developing world see that it is possible to raise themselves by previously unimagined leaps. Just look at East Asia. Once the apple of prosperity is tasted, then desire for its increase breaks the limits of its previous constraints. Modi, the Indian Prime Minister, and voicing the aspiration of the world's most populous country, announced shortly after the COP conference, quote, India is on the cusp of takeoff. Unquote. Nothing is going to stop that happening, least of all some theories about climate disaster coming out of the West. Also sobering is the retort of Al Jaba, the COP28 chairman, that should the oil-producing countries phase out fossil fuels, most of the world would return to the Stone Age very fast. It's a shocking thought that the world is not ready for the economic consequences of dispensing with fossil fuels, although the planet can no longer afford it. That is a central contradiction of economic growth. But contradiction saturates the whole debate of climate change from the very top to the very bottom. Just to give one example. In late 2023, the Panamanian courts closed down one of the largest copper mines in the world, based in their country. Although Congress had given the green light on the renewal of its contract early in the year, Massive environmental protests caused an about-turn and it was hailed as a victory for indigenous peoples, the protection of wildlife and ecology in general. However, the price of such victory is very high. It is triggering a massive arbitration settlement in the region of $50 billion. This would be one of the largest ever known and would be crippling to the Panamanian economy.
it would consist of compensation payments to the copper mine Gobri Panama. There will also be the loss of around 7,000 jobs and a large loss in export earnings. In addition, other foreign investors will be frightened off. Coming at a time when there is a drought in the Panama Canal and a restriction of shipping, all of this is very bad news for the economy. But to rub salt in the wound, and here is the contradiction, the reduction of world copper production resulting from this will be a severe blow to the green transition. For copper is a crucial metal for wind turbines and electric cars as well as the new power transmission lines required. To say that we have only just realised the immense danger we are in is untrue. The science has been growing on this subject for 70 years and has reached a crescendo in the last two decades. It has been deliberately denied, minimised and clouded over by the fossil fuel lobby. However, in recent years, anybody who wants to examine the theory and evidence can easily and freely do so. Moreover, the growing evidence of climate change in our daily lives is undeniable for those who wish to see, that is. Melting ice caps, retreating glaciers, extreme weather conditions, rising sea levels, acidification of oceans, increased storm damage, increasing average earth temperatures and so on. But perhaps there are other explanations that could account for these phenomena. For example, argument one. Recent average earth temperature increases can be caused by any number of factors, not simply from greenhouse gases originating in human activity. Answer. Since the mid-1800s, scientists have shown that CO2 is a principal greenhouse gas that has a powerful impact on the energy balance of the Earth. We can measure CO2 in the atmosphere and also in air trapped in ice going back hundreds of thousands of years. From 1800 to 2020, there has been a 40% increase in atmospheric CO2. Actually, CO2 levels are higher than at any time in the last 800,000 years. Scientists can measure the different types of particular carbon isotopes that show that this increase is not the result of volcanic activity, for example, but due to the burning of fossil fuels. Methane and nitrous oxide also have increased as a consequence of human activities. The Earth's surface temperature rise since 1900 correlates closely with the increases in atmospheric greenhouse gases. Also very closely correlated are increases in ocean heat, atmospheric moisture, sea levels and melting of land and sea ice. We have available testing and evidence from advanced equipment plus a clear and demonstrable explanation in physics of how greenhouse gases account for the recent observed changes in climate. Natural causes contributing to climate change, such as variation in the sun's output and in Earth's orbit around the sun, volcanic eruptions and internal fluctuations in the climate system, do not explain it. 
Indeed, our best understanding is that if there had been no increase in greenhouse gases, then the Earth would have cooled slightly, despite these natural contributions. It is only when our models include the impact of greenhouse gases on the atmosphere that the resulting temperature changes are explained. Argument 2. For example, to drill down further in the above argument, that the increase in Earth's temperature is the result of the natural increase in the sun's energy and is not caused by carbon emissions. Answer. The evidence does not support this. If global warming in the last 50 years, for example, were the result of increased energy from the sun, then science tells us that the troposphere, that is the lower atmosphere near the Earth's surface, and the stratosphere, the higher reaches of the atmosphere, would both be increasing in temperature as solar radiation heats the whole vertical extent of the atmosphere. However, if global warming were the result of human emissions of CO2, then the lower atmosphere would be increasing in average temperature because heat would be trapped there by greenhouse gases, while the upper atmosphere would be cooling since it is deprived of the rising heat now trapped below. When this hypothesis was formulated in the 1960s, it was not possible to test it properly. Now, however, it is, and the scientific evidence is clearly for the latter explanation. Accurate measurements recently available do not support the first hypothesis that purely natural changes in the sun's energy output or volcanic activity, or for that matter, natural climate variations such as El Nino or La Nina, are responsible for global warming. On the contrary, there is a warming troposphere and a cooling stratosphere, which is explained by greenhouse gas emissions. Argument 3. So, pursuing this argument further, the cycles of solar radiation have varied throughout Earth's history, often causing much greater increases and decreases in temperature than we are experiencing at present. Current temperature rises may well then be explained by other factors than emissions. Answer. In Season 2, Episode 88, I explained that the Earth passes through great cycles of glacial and warming conditions, with enormous consequences for the promotion or restriction or even extinction of life. Cold glacial periods have been followed by shorter, warmer periods. Recently, these natural cycles have been occurring roughly every 100,000 years, caused by changes in Earth's orbit, altering the way the Sun's energy is distributed, depending on latitude and by season. These orbital changes are called the Milankovitch cycles. However, these have been very small over the last several hundred years and cannot explain the changes in average Earth temperatures since the Industrial Revolution. Moreover, current temperature rises are experienced on the whole Earth, whereas in the Milankovitch cycles, it depends on latitude where the temperature changes take place. This is because it is the angle of the Earth to the Sun, which he called obliquity, that plays the important role, according to Milankovitch. 
On Ice Age timescales, these gradual orbital variations have led to changes in the extent of ice sheets and in the abundance of CO2 and other greenhouse gases. Global average temperatures have risen by about 4 to 5 degrees centigrade since the end of the last ice age. But these changes have occurred over a period of about 7,000 years, starting 18,000 years ago. By contrast, CO2 levels have rocketed by 40% in the past 200 years. Actually, most of this since the 1970s. And has warmed the Earth by at least 1.1 degrees centigrade, which is a very conservative estimate. It is the speed of warming at more than 10 times that at the end of the Ice Age, and which is closely related with the enormous rise in CO2 emissions, that is crucial evidence. In addition, all the evidence over the last century indicates that changes in the sun's output over this century have been insignificant. In our next and probable final episode, I shall examine the most unusual aspect of the climate crisis, its metaphysical and mythical dimensions. But finally, for today's episode, a different subject. I happen to live in the United Kingdom, a country that long ago gave up its Christian beliefs. The magnificent churches of this religion are largely empty. Yet one tradition will not die, that of Christmas and the turning of the year, at which time millions of people are emotionally moved by mythical and uncomprehended forces. Though having no beliefs in a God or the Divine, they mount a Christmas tree in their homes and cover it with lights. They gather in families and proclaim their love, give presents, and especially if they are blessed by children, participate in a wonderful myth of a Siberian shaman who comes with his Arctic reindeer and brings joy and presents. No expense is spared, and people are possessed by an extraordinary longing to be with their families. At the centre of this is an ancient myth of a child that was born in the darkest time of year to a very poor family that were practically refugees, threatened by persecution and even death, from which they had to escape to Egypt. This family returned to Bethlehem so the child could be born there, which is an area we now actually call Palestine. A child that was to be a light in the darkness. Talking of which, as I announced at the start of the last episode, I will be starting on January the 2nd another meditation programme based upon The Secret of the Golden Flower, an ancient Taoist text that centres itself on the circulation of the light as an inner phenomena. This is a free programme, open to anyone who can commit themselves to a daily meditational practice of 30 minutes for 100 days, and a contemplative study of the secret of the golden flower. Perhaps it might be for you. If you wish to join, you may contact me at thepilgrimquest at gmail.com 
or find contact details on my website www.alamalhern.com Last year I played a song by Mark Dunn who sings in the group called The Bringers of Change. The music is available on Spotify and more details are available in the text preamble to this episode which tells you where you can find this music. This lovely song I wish to play again. It is called The Turning of the Year. Let's look each other kindly in the eye I will try to let bygones go by Won't you help me when I'm high and dry There's nothing more to fear There's friends and all good cheer We made it through another year to me at the turning of the year Do we carry on or let it go Can we work together I don't know Can we take the time to find a way Talking through the night into another day There's nothing more to fear No better place than here We've made it through another year Open your arms to me At the turning of the year Get along to 
bear the dreadful losses and carry on So here's to another year Let's put aside all of our fear No one 